sometimes the Bible is uh, quirky and mysterious, complicated and nuanced, hidden sometimes in a kind of darkness, um, a darkness that's revealed, of course, but there are passages, you know. Um, sometimes it's simple and straightforward, even if uh, that simplicity and that straightforwardness is, is, is hard to make it real or relevant into your heart. This is one of the simple ones. There's not a lot of complicated explanations I have for you today. Um, I will reference some Hebrew words, but just to explain what's already on the page, it's not like some nuance to it. Um, it's just not that complicated, even though it's hard to get into the heart at times. There are seven directives that are given in Psalm 100 and two motivations that exist in it as well. And I'm going to add a third. Well, because um, we read in light of who the Lord Jesus is. The directives, as I said, are pretty simple. I'm going to spend a little more time on the first one, and they go rapid fire through the other six. And the first one is what we just did, was make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Make some noise, is what it says. Make some noise filled with joy. Some older translations, again, say shout. But it's probably best that shout is a part of making the greater joyful noise. And it's talking to all earthlings here. All the earth. Make noises of joy. In my experience with noises of joy, or joy noises... Um, they, they, they are held on both, um, both sides of the spectrum uh, emotionally. Let me explain with a couple of illustrations. The first one being, um, there was this song while I was in seminary that was really popular in Protestant evangelical churches. And it was, shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to our King. Thank you for helping me out about halfway through because it was going to get flat real quick. One of my friends in seminary was in a church that loved that song. Like every other week, loved that song. And every time in his church when they were singing that song, right when they were amping up to shout to the... There was a dude in the back who would go... It's like Ric Flair was in the service, man. When I was a young pastor and a seminarian, my friends and I were critical about the state of the church, even though we loved her, from the cheesiness of its music and the peaked imagination for its mission, we were in our 20s already hardened. My friend came back and told us about the woo guy, and we laughed. We mocked him we were clever and cool. But we had grown too old, even in our 20s, too critical and too cynical. The fault was, not, was on us and not the woo guy. He was not imitating Ric Flair, or even if he was, he was embodying what Psalm 100 is inviting, declaring, commanding us to do. 
He was making a noise, filled with joy. And I wince now over my arrogance and naivete. But I've experienced other expressions of joyful noises in the opposite spectrum. In seminary, again, I was in another church, in another church, and during that service, a woman was weeping uncontrollably and loudly and with joy. The pastor saw the congregation and the vulnerability of this woman, and he saw the judgy and alarmed gazes of the people in the room. He went to the side of his pulpit, and in his own tears, he said, if you only knew. And I took that to mean, if you only knew what our sister has gone through, if you only knew what God has done in the midst of it, if you only knew any of those things, you would be celebrating, if not weeping and wailing with joy, and not with your judgy gaze. Now, when it comes to joyful noises, I am more comfortable with silent groans of hope, of joining my heart with the majesty of a well-organized musical production. Eruptions of joy, whether shouting or wailing, make me anxious. I am a Presbyterian minister. And yes, I know that there are times when someone who's experiencing that or that behavior, showing that behavior, that there could be uh, some attention-seeking, some psychological stuff going on, reasons for why it might be a problem to do certain things at certain times. But because I am trained in the way I have been trained, I go to that way too quickly, to that narrative. That's not on them, that's on me. Make a joyful noise. That's shouts and sounds and jumps and jigs and wooing and weeping in Godward joy. I want to explore the next directives in relationship to the woo man and the weeping woman. Maybe we'll notice something about them. The second directive is to serve, to serve the Lord with gladness. And what if the woo man and the weeping woman come, came to serve the Lord and to serve him with gladness? It is a directive. And gladness, of course, makes more sense for the woo man. But, but they're both called to serve. And what it's saying is we don't come to a worship service in charge. We come as servants of God in response to his goodness and kindness and love. It's not first and foremost about our preferences, but about yielding to and relying on God within each one of our personalities both in the moment and in light of eternity. We are not here for our bidding, but His bidding. We are servants of God and of our neighbors. And this is a call to see the glad state that we are in. Look, 
I, I cannot wait. One day, someone's going to come up to me and say, oh my goodness, I really hate this song, but my friend loves this song. We have to put it back in the rotation. That never happens. When that happens, I'll quit. In fact, an elder came to me afterward and said, hey, I really want you to keep Sandra McCracken in the, in the mix. And I was like, are you wanting me to quit? Just kidding. When, when we are in our right mind, which doesn't happen as often as we would hope, we are glad and we are willing to serve our God and our neighbors in that gladness. The third one is to sing. Grammatically, it says you know, the, the command is to come, but it's to come in with singing, come to him with singing. And both the woo guy and the weeping woman were in the middle of the worship set, if you will, the singing part of the sermon, when they erupted with this joyful noise. The scriptures direct us to sing because it taps into the hum in our hearts and fills our mouths with joy. You know this about singing. If Algebra 2 were set to song, I would have done much better. I know of no single denomination on the earth or in church history that doesn't include singing. There are a couple denominations that don't have instrumentation. God bless them. But none without singing. The Moravians, right here, used to say that theology is preserved in their hymnody. It's a directive that calls us to be attuned to God's word and in tune um, with each other before God to serve him, to get it in our souls, in our hearts, in our voices, in our chests, in our lungs. And the third one, or the fourth one, is to know. This is a directive. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. Look. The woo man and the weeping woman made a joyful noise in the context of what they knew about God. We don't just attune our emotions. We're tuning our emotions to the knowledge of God, toward the lyrics of his word. Worship is never, never, ever just thinking God thoughts. And it is never less than thinking God thoughts. And scripture like, the word no is bodily. It holds our emotions, our minds, our actions. Heck, the word no in the Bible means intercourse as well as worship. It's a deep, physical, emotional, mental knowledge of God as our Father, Son, and Spirit. Know that He is God. And five is enter. Enter his gates. Enter the worship service. In this context, the temple. Enter those courts of the temple with praise. Both the woo man and the weeping woman made a joyful noise in the context of a worship service where they had entered in. And this is the temple in David's world. There were several gates around the temple, both in the inner courts and outside. It's a picture of them being flung open. Flung open as a house of prayer for all people, Isaiah says, and Jesus reiterates. 
we enter in with praise and gratitude, knowing we will receive, we are received by God's mercy and His power. The praise song we sing before the worship service starts, that's not just like flicking the lights in the intermission just to get you to your seats and stop talking in the hallways, though it does serve that purpose. I mean, it does, um, it does effectively do that. What it is, is that you would have in your heart and on your lips, as you enter in, songs of praise. That you would enter his courts with praise. That's its purpose. It's literally entering into the temple with praise. That's why they ring bells historically that the songs would start out in the streets and in the parking lots that we would come in. Which gives us the next directive. Give thanks. If there's anything true about the woo man and the weeping woman, it's gratitude, thankfulness. And all this is saying is to verbalize that gratitude and all the hardships and all the beauty of your life. Speak it out. It doesn't get simpler than this. That gratitude is our superpower. That it is the most countercultural, socially disruptive, relationally healing, and radical postures of our day. Because what gratitude does is it destroys any arrogance or cynicism or bitterness or envy. The psalm invites us, directs us to this superpower of gratitude to remind our hearts of just how kind he has been to us in Christ Jesus. And the last directive is to bless, to bless his name. This can sound odd to us because what, what do we do in blessing God? We don't add anything to him. We don't increase anything in him. We, we don't even bestow any actual value on him, and so it doesn't mean any of that. But as Jesus taught us to pray, we do in fact hallow or holify or bring renown or knownness to his name. We make it bigger by blessing him. We speak of him as holy, good, and just, merciful, generous, and kind, full of grace and power. We ascribe the honor that he deserves. He already has it, and we just tell it back to him. We simply name his character back to him, but we don't just catalog his character and deeds alone. It is with this blessing part of it, this is honor, this admiration, this affection, this exaltation of who he is. We bless God because he's loved us so well. So the directives of Psalm 100 are make some noise, serve, sing, know, enter, give thanks, and bless. That's just in five verses, y'all. How does it hit you to hear these directives? Does it feel like a warm welcome? A sweet beckoning of your soul? Does it conjure some form of despair of how unmoved you can be in a worship service? Does it sound corny, inaccessible, like some type of spiritual platitudes? 
Does it feel like an otherworldly escape against the realities of this world filled with rage and hate? Does it strike deep into your soul? Does it fall flat like religious lingo? Does it make you mad or sad or glad? Or does it even make a blip on your, your emotional radar? Here's what I want you to know, that these words, however they hit you, were given to you in love. They are not a checklist, but an invitation to enter into deep communion with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in worship. And this is why the other parts, the motivations that are in Psalm 100, are so important. There's a reason why Psalm 100 is in the Mount Rushmore of the Psalter, of the Psalms, right? Like, it is definitely in the top four. It, it makes the playlists of all denominations. I have a Spotify account called 100. Not account, playlist, called 100. It has the African Psalms Project. It has uh, some liturgical folk. That's a thing. It's got a neo-soul banger that's outstanding. It has Westminster Abbey Choir. It has a black choir, African-American choir. It has a straight acoustic. I love this playlist. But here's what you need to know, that the directives alone will create in you, without the motivations, will create in you a kind of self-reliance uh, or, or, or a desire to create, do some type of religious performance. And those by nature lead you away from God. And so we turn to the motivations in a more significant way. God already knows that we can't come to him um, pretending. He knows how fallen and finite we are. And he comes to us with his mercy and majesty and gives us these kind of motivations that are going on. That, that are going on. In verse 3, it simply says that he is God. Know that the Lord, he is God. And he is not just God, but he is the Lord, which if in your English translations of the Bible, it has usually capital L-O-R-D, um, and that means Yahweh, his name. It, 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 he's showing a kind of intimacy and connection. You cannot say Yahweh without taking a little breath in, a little breath out. It's made for that. It, it requires something of our lungs. Yahweh has a history with his people and with all the earth, and he created us among all these things. He created a people for himself, a, a flock, sheep for his own pasture. I want us to sit in that a sec. The directors are not from a distant God, but a God who has a name and a faithfulness over time. Not the gods that wreaked havoc over David's culture or the gods that wreak havoc in our own culture. Yahweh is not asking us uh, to hum through the lyrics like a song that we barely know. It's given to us as a creator, a sustainer, and the very breath of life. And so the designs of like tree trunks, the wonder of jellyfish, the, the in ingenuity of ants, the, the, the fact that earthworms and plants make sounds we cannot hear, that's supposed to have us in awe. He is God that we wouldn't try to number the stars or the sands, that it's, it is right and good to gawk at sunsets and babies' cheeks, both sets. 
Stay attuned to the roar of the oceans and the beautiful silence of a morning. Muse over mountains and molecules. He is God. His name is Yahweh. And he's come to be with us. These are not mistakes. They're the creations of the Creator. Savor them and savor them as a display of his kindness. This is the God who calls us to worship. Do not let the, 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 the familiarity with these things become a trivialization of these things. Amanda called me out last night because that storm was a brewing, that really quick storm was a brewing. And she said, let's just come out and, and, and look. And we sat down on our chairs and we're just like, whoa, the wind, oh, that's it. Let the rain fall on you. We went in before the rain, but let the rain fall on you. Human life is incomprehensible without this God. Marvel at his majesty. Yahweh, he is God. He made you. Anselm says, come now, little one, turn aside for a while from our daily employment. Escape for a moment from the tumult of your thoughts. Put aside your weighty cares. Let your burdenous distractions wait and free yourself a while for God and rest a while in him. The second motivation is not just that he is God, but that he is good. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is covenantal. This is the promise, the promise-keeping God. And again, the psalmist uses the name Yahweh. He is both familiar and familial. A knowable God that has revealed himself over the centuries, through the generations. Because a God that is a God with all power that is not good is a terror. And only fear and unworthiness can be your response. But a God who is good, who reveals himself fundamentally as the God of love, whose steadfast love endures forever is a totally different ballgame. Human life is incomprehensible without God. It would be unbearable if God was not good, but he is declaring that he is good. And this is what the woo guy and the weeping woman, the joyful noise, must be born of the fact that his steadfast kindness actually was realized in their lives. Faithfulness, trustworthiness for years and decades and centuries and millennia this is all amid our hearts that struggle sometimes with stale worship or worse, our, our mutinous sin and bad behavior and turning away from him or our distracted hearts. We deserve none of this kind of steadfast love and faithfulness, but it endures. It endures through us to generation after generation. It's called grace, the unmerited affection, his undying promise to be with us no matter how foolish rebellious we are. The motivation for joyful noises is that he loves us. He loves us more than we love our own. He loves us more than our own love us. He loves us more than we can love ourselves. He loves us so much that he sent his son. Amid our brokenness and rebellion, he sent Jesus. He did not turn his head from us but, but towards us and what he promises to do and who he shows up in the New Testament is, is as the temple and the gate. 
And so I want us to linger on that. God's undying promise throughout all of scriptures is fulfilled in the, the undying promise is fulfilled in the dying of Jesus and his resurrection. And the scriptures call him the temple and the gate. The hard reality is that the, 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 like, we have a home, a place to go, a gate to enter in. And it's from a man from Nazareth who came to live and die and rise again. Remember, this, this psalm is a literal call to a worship service in the temple. And yet it was sung in Babylon and Assyria after the temple was destroyed. It's sung today in prisons and in palaces. It was sung on the first Thanksgiving during the colonial area, even though half of them had died. It's sung every Friday in most monasteries across the world, unless they're Benedictines and they sing it on Sunday. It is the Jubilate in the Book of Common Prayer. And it is the soundtrack of Reformation hymn writers throughout that time. And even today, today, dozens of languages and even more dialects and even more cultures have taken these songs onto their lips and into their hearts and into their lungs. It has been sung today in mud brick huts and thatched roofs amid marble floors with ceilings vaulted higher than the trees, and then under trees with rolling hills and roofs that are tin lit by a single light bulb. It's been sung today. How is this possible? There is one point to this sermon. This psalm has power to be lived out in that way and enliven our hearts and lungs and tongues because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a song, and you could say Jesus does the best cover of the song ever. In his arrangement, he doesn't change the melody of grace and awe and power, but boy, he changes the modulations, he changes the harmonies, and the glorious instrumentation. When you think about the woo guy, or the weeping woman. What you need to think about is that they've had a real encounter <clears throat> with the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So whether you believe this or not, the faithfulness of Yahweh over time was to show that Jesus is the gate. The gate is not the temple gate made with hands which was a symbol of God's welcome. He is the, get, the gate sent by God to bring welcome in mystic communion with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to forgive us of our sins, to deliver us from evil, and to invite us into fellowship with him. Look, y'all, at the end of Jesus' life, he, um, he kind of ransacked the temple. It was a, a, it was a semi-violent protest against the injustices that were going on. Um, because people were trying to make a profit on God's mercy and his love. And so he chucked some tables over, pulled the whip out, made room so that people could enter the inner gates. The church folk, as you might imagine, were a little peeved. And they say, what? What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? 
And he answers, destroy the temple, and I'll build it up in three days. And they answered, it took us 40 years, 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? The Gospel of John gives the explanatory note, so does Matthew. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Matthew says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here, which is me, the capital T temple, and I throw open my gates for people. He identifies himself a little bit mystically, as Jesus does often, as the temple and the gate. And his, his broken body becomes the gate for us that we can come in. Because in his broken body and his shed blood, he forgives our sins and welcomes us to himself. He tears down the gates of all the temples, even into the Holy of Holies, and welcomes us to presence with God. There were dozens of gates around the temple, and he becomes the one true gate flung wide open by his mercy and love because of his sacrifice and power. Maybe this, just maybe this, as we get it into our hearts, we might look a little bit more, not a requirement, like the woo guy and the weeping woman. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us and you keep us, you care for us. Oh, teach us to worship with joyful noises. We pray in your name. Amen.